You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. What has happened during the pandemic is there was a 20% surge in gaming, meaning more gamers who are less seasoned uh, have joined the gaming communities. As a result, uh, more hackers are targeting the gamers right now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Raj Sakar, he's CMO of 1Password, and Julian Benishow, he's Senior Director of Partnership Strategy and Execution for Gen G Esports. We're talking about their collaboration to better secure the credentials of gamers. Mm-hmm. All right, Joe, before we get into our stories this week, we've got some follow-up here. Uh, why don't you take us through what we've got? So first off, Ryan writes in about our catch of the day from last week. He mm. says, hi, Dave and Joe. Much like others who have emailed you, I'm a longtime listener, but from little old New Zealand. You ever been to New Zealand? No, but it's on my list. It is. Mine too. I think like a lot of folks, I was captivated from what everything I saw in the Lord of the Rings movies. And I was like, oh man, I got to check that place out. Unfortunately, Joe, I don't know if you know this, New Zealand is very far away. It is, yeah. (laughs) It's it's a long flight. It's about as far as you can get from where we are on a spherical planet. Yes. Uh, So it takes a while. You got to really want it. But I, I do. I do want it. Yeah. Ryan goes on to say, out of... All the security-related podcasts I listen to weekly, yours is at the top. Oh, well, thank you, Ryan. Very nice. So many laughs to be had. I think it's great that you can approach the topic with some level of jovialness. Well, that's what we try to do, Mm -hmm. right? I just finished listening to your latest podcast. A return to office means, this is episode 206. Yeah. I'm not going to read the whole title. But he says, my ears perked up when you spoke about the Apple ID catch of the day. Weeks prior, I too received a similar email. But as a longtime Google Android user, I immediately dismissed the idea of an, of his app of my Apple account being locked. All right. However, this email did make me look hard as it was very well done for a phishing email. So much so that I he actually put together a slide pack for this and sent it along for his organization to raise awareness of the issue. What struck me with this particular phishing email was the way the scammers had sent the phishing email to Apple's legitimate email address and then BCC'd my email address. So when you see it, you're going to see Apple's email address at the top. Very clever trick and very astute observation from Ryan. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Keep up the good work. Look hmm. forward to more laughs. So they sent it to they sent the f- thing to Apple, knowing that it would go into a black hole at sure. Apple. Yeah, no, nobody cares, right? Right, right. Uh, but but you'll see that Apple address, the real Apple address at the top. And in a quick glance, right, that looks legit, right? Like they they must have sent it to themselves as well as to me, right? Right. I've seen this practice with a uh, with an online game I play. Mm. play. I play an online play by email game, believe mm-hmm. it or not, very slow paced game. But the guy that runs the game will send out an email to himself and blind carbon copy everybody else in the game, right? So that that way. If you hit reply all, it only goes back to him, mm-hmm. right? It's a mm-hmm. it's a it's a good way to keep those annoying reply all emails from happening. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. So 
it, it, this adds credibility to it by seeing the Apple email in the address in the to address. Yeah, or, that's or, interesting. Yes, the to address. Huh. All right. Very good. We have another bit of feedback from Dwayne who writes in about our story we covered with the QuickBook invoicing. He says, hi, guys. I hope you guys are both doing well. Love the show. Following up on the use of QuickBooks by scammers, other invoicing services are being used in this way. In June, my wife was targeted by a campaign using the Wave invoicing service, impersonating Norton for the renewal of antivirus subscriptions. Hmm. Then he goes on to, sh- to send a link about uh, where he posted this on Twitter. Uh, and Wave actually responded on Twitter, as did Norton. I look, took a look at this on Twitter. Dave, you know, I don't spend a lot of time on social media. Yeah. But uh, I did I, I quickly realize I'm scrolling through Twitter again, Dave. <laughs> Welcome back. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I said, I got to stop this. <laughs> Turn right. it off. But I did see Dwayne's, uh, Dwayne's post, and they did respond. Okay. So thank you, Dwayne, for sending that in. And uh, that is a good reminder that it's not just QuickBooks. It's anybody. Anybody that has a service like this. It could be, uh, you know, there's uh, other invoicing services. There's one called FreshBooks, I know, that uh, mm-hmm, a friend mm-hmm. of mine uses. Yep, yep. That is uh, timekeeping and invoicing for uh, for consultants. Yeah. Uh, there's Wave that Dwayne is talking about. There's other ones out there. Anybody any of the, anybody that, that lets somebody set up a, a temporary account, that's what these scammers are going to do. Mm-hmm. They're going to set up a temporary account or, you know, a trial account, and they're going to send out invoices, and they're going to impersonate big brands. Yeah. So you got to be extra vigilant. Indeed. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks to everyone for sending in this feedback. We do appreciate it. Uh, And of course, we'd love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like for us to consider sharing on the show, you can write us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, let's uh, jump into our stories this week. Uh, I'm going to kick things off for us. Uh, This is an article that came from the MIT Technology Review, uh, article by Patrick Howell O'Neill, Uh, And it's titled, How Governments Seize Millions in Stolen Cryptocurrency. So as you and I have talked about many times, you know, cryptocurrency is kind of the, oh, I don't know, is it it the fuel that enables a lot of these scams? Is it the... Is it the lubrication that makes like what's what's the proper analogy? That's a good question. I think it's I think it's the lubrication. The greed is the fuel, Dave. Okay, the greed is the fuel. <laughs> very good. Very uh, good. The, the lubrication. I would say lubrication because it makes it makes it a lot more frictionless for the right. scammers. And were it not for cryptocurrency, the scammers would have a lot more difficult time. They'd have to use the banking system, which is heavily regulated. Right. Right. And a lot harder to all, all that stuff. So. Right. So this story is about uh, when law enforcement uh, decides that they want to try to claw back some of these funds. How do they go about doing it? Uh, and it's a really interesting uh, overview of, of what happens here. Um, a couple of things that, that I wasn't familiar with, just a couple of terms that were new to me. I mean, uh, you know, we've talked uh, many times here about uh, the tumblers. Yes. That uh, Joe, you want to give us a quick explanation of that? So a tumbler is, let's say you have a bunch of Bitcoin you need to essentially uh, obfuscate the origin of, right? Right. You got right. it in a scam. You got like six Bitcoin in a scam, which is what, $100,000 these days? Yeah. Uh, so you take that to a tumbler service and they put it in as six Bitcoin and they give you back a receipt of some kind that lets you withdraw six Bitcoin at a later date. Mm-hmm. Now, you don't go out and withdraw six Bitcoin. You would draw uh, half a Bitcoin, then uh, then one Bitcoin, then 0.75 of Bitcoin. Mm. And each time you do this, you get a new receipt, and you can you can continue to withdraw until you get all of your money back out. Or maybe you leave a little bit in there so it doesn't show up on any uh, aggregator or blockchain explorer as mm-hmm. this is where the money went. 
Hmm. So a couple of things they mentioned here that I was not familiar with. One of them, uh, they, they refer to something called a peel chain. I'm not familiar That's with that P-E-E-L, either. P-E-E-L, and that is uh, when you move cryptocurrency through thousands of transactions to obfuscate the source and destination. So just hopping, 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 hopping. You know, yeah, just- I mean, that if, if you're doing that over and over and over again, that I don't think that's particularly difficult to track. Well, we'll get to that. Okay. So another thing they talk about is chain hopping, which is uh, just going across different blockchains. That strikes me as being more difficult to track. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this article talks about some tools that are available to help surveil these blockchains. And they, they mention companies like uh, Chainalysis. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think I'm pretty sure I've interviewed some yeah, folks I from there. Yeah, I think you've had somebody on from Chainalysis. Yeah. Uh, talking about how they are used by law enforcement to find where this money goes. Right. And uh, there's another one they mentioned called TRM Labs, another one called Elliptic. Uh, And they have software tools that basically analyze cryptocurrency uh, platforms. And so I guess, I mean, it makes sense, right? Right. One of the things about blockchain stuff is that it's all there. The blockchain is public, yeah. (laughs) Right. So Unless you're on a privacy-preserving cryptocurrency. Yeah. That's correct. So these folks take all that information and I guess they make it – uh, available in a way that mere mortals can understand it and analyze it. And so if you're law enforcement, you can use these tools. I guess if you're anybody, you can use these tools to try to track down mm-hmm. the flow of uh, these cryptocurrencies from one place to another. So that's the tracing part. Uh, but then there's actually, you know, how do they seize the money? Yeah, how do they get the money? Right. Uh, and this article talks about three ways that the government can lawfully access and seize their funds. Oh, I think I know one of the ways. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What's that? Is it, it – there's actually a term of art for this, Dave. Um, I just submitted a paper where I uh, was reminded of the term of art by one of the students I was working on. It's called rubber hose cryptanalysis. Oh, okay. And that is the idea that there, this, is, this is the root of the, of the problem, but there is no such thing as a, as a perfectly secure system. Even a strong cryptographic system is not perfectly secure. Mm-hmm. Because if I tie you down in a chair and hit you with a rubber hose long enough, eventually you're going to tell me the keys to your wallet. <laughs> okay. that's, that's what it is. So, I mean, but it's not, it's not the same kind of thing. You're, you're not hitting them with a rubber hose. You're just showing them how they're going to spend the rest of their lives in prison. I see. Right? It's the same, the same threat model, though. Right. Right. Is that one of the ideas, one of the things? Well, I, yeah, I mean, so there's the regular path of law enforcement, right? Right. I mean, you, you basically law enforcement gathers up their evidence. They have their probable cause. They go in front of a judge and they say, please give us a warrant. Mm -hmm. And then they're able to talk to the folks who run, uh, you know, these cryptocurrency services and say, you know, hey, Give us your dough. You know, right. Give us, if, give that's us that's another good point. If this if this cryptocurrency is in an exchange, yeah. uh, as I've said before, if you don't own the keys, you don't own the cryptocurrency. Right. They can just seize it, right? Because that that crypto that crypto exchange is just going to be like, well, law enforcement saying I got to give them Joe's money. Yeah. So uh, here's all Joe's cryptocurrency. Have a nice day. Thank you very much. Right. And my account <laughs> goes to zero and they show me the warrant and Nothing I go. Nothing to see here. Right. Oh, no. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. So another method they use is they, let's say uh, they grab another member of your team of bad guys mm-hmm. and they convince that person, uh, hey, hey, listen, you don't want to spend the rest of your life in jail. Right. We're not really after you. It's Joe that we want. Yes. And so that person becomes, uh, you know, a friendly witness as part of a plea agreement or something like that. That person turns over the keys and 
there you go. Right. Uh, and then the third way is uh, if they actually go in and compromise the target's security. Yes. Um, Which and- is what they did with the um, the oil pipeline just just a couple of years ago. The shutdown. Right. It, right. They that they actually recovered that cryptocurrency not from the ransomware gang but from the affiliate mm-hmm. gang, and and the split there was like seventy thirty. Right. So the ransomware gang got thirty percent, and they never got that money back, but the affiliates had 70%, and they just had their keys sitting out on a cloud storage somewhere. Mm-hmm. And the feds found it and were just like, oh, look at this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's our cryptocurrency now. Right. Zoink. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, this article points out that a lot of times uh, that's more the, in the category of nation states who have the resources to go right. in and, and uh, you know, have serious level hacking and, and trying to decrypt passwords and things it like that. It may not that. even be hacking. They may be executing another search warrant like on Google or something mm-hmm. and saying, I need to see the cloud drive storage of this guy's, the cloud storage of, of, of these accounts. Yeah. And Google goes, okay, here's, you, you have a warrant. Here it is. And they, oh, oh, look, here, stored among this or just plain text keys. And then law enforcement may, may be looking through those files and go, oh, look, here. Here are the keys. Right. And, I mean, that's another way they can get them. Yeah. Some other interesting things from this article, uh, the folks over at Chainalysis uh, have some stats. They they said that uh, the mixers have moved over $50 million a month on average this year, which is twice as what they did last year. Is that per mixer or is that all the mixers? No idea. I think that my my sense is that that's total. Mm. That's the aggregate of, of the various so mixers that they track. They're moving $50 a month. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Pretty um, good exit scam, if you ask me. <laughs> that's what. But, I, that's what. I, you know, if I were a cyber criminal, that would be my worry, is that there would be an exit scam on a Tumblr. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would have to. Yeah. So I guess the answer to that is diversify your Tumblrs mm-hmm. from a criminal perspective. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I want to help these guys out. Any more than I already <laughs> do, Dave. <laughs> and then they they go on and say that you know one one of the things they're seeing is just there are a lot more attacks than there used to be. Um, so it's just, as we say here so many times, you know, the the hackers or the the hackers, not the hackers, the bad guys. The bad guys, they, right? They they evolve their techniques. Yep. And uh, that's what that's what they're seeing here as well. So uh, interesting article. I will include a link to that in the show notes. Again, that's from MIT Technology Review, and it's titled "How Government Sees Millions in Stolen Cryptocurrency." Joe, what do you have for us this week? Dave, I have a story from MarketWatch. This comes from Lucas Albert over at uh, MarketWatch. And the title of the story is Jeweler Who Sold Trump Maple's Ring Sentenced to 12 Years in Multi-Million Dollar Yellow Rose Diamond Scam. Huh. Now, the the Trump Maple's relationship is an old relationship. That Donald Trump and Marla Maples got married years ago. They're yeah. now divorced. Yeah. Right. I don't know why that's in the headline, probably because it grabs attention, right? Sure. <laughs> uh, but again, remember. That uh, Lucas doesn't write the headlines. This is uh, he's just pointing out this guy's a, a a jeweler to the stars, if you will. Okay. Uh, this guy's name is Joseph Dumo Dumochel, and what happened was he wound up in a little bit of trouble, hmm. and uh, he's based out of Michigan, and he was there was this uh, oil baron that he owed money to. <laughs> As you do, right? <laughs> he owed this guy about. Four hundred thousand dollars. Okay. Now, 
I don't know about you, Dave, but there's nobody I owe four hundred thousand dollars to. No, I, no. I would be really nervous <laughs> if I owed somebody four hundred thousand dollars. Right, other than like my mortgage company. Uh, I don't <laughs> even owe, owe that much on my mortgage, yeah. <laughs> which is yeah. amazing to me. Yeah, yeah. This guy owes this much to a guy that that deals in oil. Yeah. So what he does is he goes to this oil guy and says, um, "Hey, I got an opportunity to buy uh, buy the um, this this." Diamond, and apparently diamonds are are named, right? This one's called the Yellow Rose. Hmm. Makes me think it's a Texas diamond. Yeah. I don't know. But it, it is a large diamond. As you would imagine. Right. Yes. <laughs> right. It is a 77-carat diamond. Holy smokes. Any guess as to how much he says a 77-carat diamond sells for? Uh, well, first of all, I want to say former President Trump, not known for his subtlety. So right. It does Actually, not- <laughs> I don't think this is this is the same diamond. This, oh, okay. I, this is a different diamond. Oh, okay. Uh, I think that this is this is just the guy that sold Trump his uh, his wedding ring for Marla Maples. Oh, his I see. Ring. So that's why he's notable. He's, his he's, notoriety comes from that, but this is a different right. incident. This is a different incident and a different diamond. Okay. 77 uh, I have no cl- I mean, it's been a while since I've been in the diamond market, Joe, so I don't know. Right. <laughs> $12 million. Wow. Now, okay. I'm not a diamond guy. My wife and my son are big into diamonds. They are both actually, at some point in time, they, they've both sold jewelry, so they know... Uh, they know all the stuff about diamonds. I've never actually seen the value of diamonds. Yeah. I just don't get it. Yeah. Um, I'm with you. Right. But my wife and son completely disagree with me. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. It's it's a it's a, a very contentious topic of conversation around the table. I see. Uh, but this oil guy's name is Thomas Ritter. Okay. And Dumouchel goes to Thomas Ritter and goes, I got this opportunity. I'm going to buy this diamond for $12 million, and then I'm going to sell it for $16 million. And then if you finance this deal, I'll give you your uh, your $400,000 back, plus probably a little bit more, right? <laughs> okay. So <laughs> Ritter says, okay, great. What do we do? And he goes, here's the bank account. Du Michel goes, here's the bank account for the uh, for the guy that's that I'm buying the diamond from. Just transfer $12 million to his account. Uh-oh. Right? And Ritter goes, you got it, and transfers $12 million to an account actually controlled by Du Michel. Oh. Who then proceeds to spend $12 million. Oh, no. I, have you, there's an Adam Sandler movie out there called Uncut Stones, I think it's called. Yeah, uh, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I had to turn that off because okay. <laughs> I started watching it, and it's kind of the, sim- the similar kind of story where Adam Sandler's just getting himself into trouble right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. I mean, I actually actually have a lot of respect for Adam Sandler as an actor now after watching the little bit of that movie I did. I was yeah. like— he is doing this so well, I can't watch it. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I got to turn this off. I'm getting too stressed out. Okay. Uh, so after spending the money, he starts telling Ritter, oh, the money's coming. The money's coming. Oh. Well, I mean, it didn't take long before the feds just arrested this guy. Oh. Um, and he is going to spend 12 years in, a pr- in prison now because of this. Wow. Uh, so the, the point here is we talk a lot about the fear motivator. Uh, and the romance motivator. But we often, we one of the motivators we skip over is the greed motivator. We, we don't skip hmm. over it. We don't talk about it as much, I would say. Yeah. And, and here's a prime example. I am sure that Mr. Ritter was looking to get his $400,000 back. Right. And also probably looking to make a little bit of extra money on it. Yeah. Saw that there was four, $4 million of margin in this in this deal that didn't exist. And coughed up $12 million 
for this for this opportunity that did not exist. Hmm. Now, here's the other thing. This is a well-respected and well-known jeweler. Mm-hmm. So this guy is already has clout and has uh, a rapport with just about everybody. And now things have gone kind of downhill for this guy. Right. This reminds me a lot of the Bernie Madoff scam. Uh, right. You remember Bernie Madoff? I mean, sure. he, he's now a, a guest of our federal government for the rest of his life as well. Yeah. Um, but he was actually, for some period of time, a very successful and real investor mm-hmm. until he started a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> Don't you think some of this, Joe, is uh, probably a sunk cost sunk cost fallacy? And that's another another piece of it. Yeah, the sunk cost fallacy. Rather than just walking away from from four hundred thousand dollars and going, I'm just never going to get that money back. Right. This guy goes, okay, well maybe you know maybe I maybe I'll, I don't know. That's a good question. I the more I'm, as I'm thinking about this, maybe he maybe there is a sunk cost fallacy portion of it. Yeah. But I'll bet. This uh, this jeweler promised Ritter more money than four hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, but yeah. but that was rolled into it. rolled into it. You yeah, know, so listen, probably yes. There probably is a sunk cost fallacy portion. Here's of a way well. everybody can win. You'll right. get your four hundred thousand dollars back. Exactly. We'll all make some money. We'll have a good time. Yeah. All I need is to borrow. $12 million. Twelve million dollars with the Doctor Evil. And we, you know, it could be that that. For for the person who got scammed here, maybe that was play money. Maybe that was disposable income, but still, uh, it ain't chump change. No, it ain't. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I hope I hope that this you know I hope that that was play money for this guy. That it doesn't it doesn't send him, you know, send him into into destitution. I kind of doubt it does. Yeah. But uh, maybe he's able to recover some of it. I don't know what happened. Yeah. Uh, there's not a lot of talk about the forensic path of the money. Even the richest among us can still fall victim to greed, I guess. Yeah, and it's a good reminder too that if if somebody that this is a this is a common tactic where someone will get you on the hook for a relatively small amount. Yes, and then they start stringing you along for more and more and more. You know, that's a common tactic also in uh, in espionage and tradecraft. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, they'll they'll ask you for something simple, and then once once you give them something small and simple, they'll use that as leverage to force you to give them more and more information. Right. All right. Well, that's interesting. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from Jeremy, and it's more of a story than a just a simple sample of fishing. But uh, I thought it was a good story. Okay. So why don't you go ahead and read what Jeremy wrote us? All right. Jeremy writes... I thought you might get a kick out of this since you've covered gift card scams in your podcasts. I received an email from one of my mom's friends the other day. I thought it was odd, but I received emails from the individual before and have been in IT for over 20 years, so it's not unusual to receive help me requests from friends and relatives. I got one of those yeah. just last week. Dave. Yeah, yeah. I think we, 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 can, uh, we can relate, Jeremy. Yes. <laughs> before opening the email, I reached out to my mom to verify the address and it checked out. I've worked in cybersecurity for about the past five-ish years, so I'm immediately suspicious about random emails, but I had already read the message when it arrived in my inbox by hitting the drop-down on my smartphone notification. There were no links or attachments, only the following. Hello, how are you? Kindly let me know if you are online. Okay, so the verbiage itself was enough to let me know it wasn't my mom's friend. Right. Next. Nobody talks like that here in America. (laughs) 
<laughs> Next, uh, I know replying to the email would let an adversary know they sent to a valid email account, mm-hmm. but I have several security measures in place, including MFA and a complex password that I change on a regular basis. And of course, I write it down and hide it under my keyboard. That's <laughs> best practices. That's absolutely very good. Very good. Uh, Jeremy goes on and says, I simply replied with, hello, how are you? And received a reply less than 12 hours later with the following response. Actually, I need some couple of gift cards, but I can't do that myself because I will be working till late night. Can you pick up some Google Play gift cards from the nearest store and have it attached to me? I will reimburse you. <laughs> this is the new guy at the scam center. Dave. Right. <laughs> right. Can't imagine why he's, everyone else is doing so much better right. than he is. Jeremy says, I think I laughed out loud when I read it because I had just listened to a podcast where you mentioned this exact thing. So at this point, I flagged the message as spam and kindly let my mom know (laughs) that her friend's email account had most likely been compromised. It amazes me how emails like this actually work. And really, if you're going to attempt to convince someone to get you gift cards, you may consider hiring a translator to assist with your conversational English skills. Thanks for the great info on your podcast. They really helped me get through my daily commute from Jeremy in Maryland. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jeremy. Yeah. It's great. I love the uh, I love the the absolute terrible English here. You know, I, I've often thought that there is a business model for somebody that is a little less scrupulous than you and I are, Dave. Mm-hmm. That they could go out and they could just say, "Hey, I'll just proofread your stuff before you send it to an American audience." Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, for for five dollars, I'll make sure that you, uh, you you send something that doesn't make you look like you are just starting out doing this. Right. Yeah, I agree. I think we've clearly demonstrated there's a need. (laughs) (laughs) Although we don't want to help these folks. So So don't do that, (laughs) dear listener. Our listeners would never do that. No, 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 no. no. All good. They're all good people. Yes, they are. All right. last one. (laughs) Well, uh, again, thanks uh, to Jeremy for sending that in. We would love to hear from you. If you have something that you would like us to consider for our catch of the day, send us an email to hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with a couple of folks. I spoke with Raj Sakar. He is CMO of the company 1Password. Uh, and I also, uh, on the line, I had Julian Benichaud, who is Senior Director of Partnership Strategy and Execution at Gen G Esports, which is an electronic uh, you know, online gaming and sports organization. So these two organizations have teamed up uh, to try to better secure the credentials of gamers. Here's my conversation with Raj and Julian. I would say that folks that are playing their games online, um, while they obviously have some tech knowledge, have a a little bit of a gap when it comes to their security. We still find that a lot of passwords are relatively weak when it comes to their gaming accounts. And we see a lot of people get their accounts stolen from them. This is a very common problem throughout the industry where people who've spent a lot of money on their accounts, getting their skins, characters, Uh, items, whatever it is virtually, end up losing those things and they end up getting sold. So we we thought this was a really pertinent kind of uh, partnership between 1Password and Gen.G, kind of let people know that, hey, password security is really important and don't lose everything that you've worked so hard to gain. And Raj, you know, you and your colleagues are are in the password protection business. So what are the challenges here when it comes to 
folks on, on the gaming side of things? Yeah, so um, what has happened during the pandemic is there was a 20% surge in gaming, meaning more gamers who are less seasoned uh, have joined the gaming communities. As a result, uh, more ha hackers are targeting the gamers right now. And the other thing about gamers is, you know, speed matters. So they don't want to slow down to meet strict security protocols. So they want to move really, really fast. Uh, and the other interesting thing about gamers is, you know, a lot of gamers have uh, virtual goods and they don't monitor their virtual goods and tokens like they check their bank accounts. So hmm. the virtual valuables have become easier to hack than, you know, accounts, for example. Well, forgive my ignorance here, but to what degree is multi-factor authentication available on the larger gaming platforms? I'd say it's relatively well available now, especially after there had been so many data hacks in the last few years. A lot of the bigger publishers have made it a, a, a priority of theirs. Now, it is not required, I would say, by most gaming uh, companies and a lot of the times, even some of the more simplistic passwords are all you need to create a gaming account, such as on uh, different kind of bigger gaming platforms. So I'd say right now it is possible, but not standard. Hmm. Raj, you know when, when I think about interacting with a password manager, there are two places I primarily do it: on my desktop within the browser itself, and then on my mobile device, you know, through a, a dedicated app. Um, is that a bit of a, a speed bump for folks who are using their, their gaming consoles? Oh, you mean accessing it directly via their gaming consoles? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're absolutely right because, uh, you know, for, if you're act, like we currently, there is no way for us to support like gaming con consoles. But if you are, a lot of, lot of gamers also access their, you know, games via the browser, for example. Like majority of the games out there, basically nowadays, it's you know it's supported by a browser, and people still like can uh, you know access all their goods via the virtual goods via the browser as well. So they can still use one password, uh, you know, to make sure that, for example, they're not reusing their passwords in different games. Because what we have seen is, in general, in the gaming community, like I said, that a lot of gamers move really, really fast. As a result, mm. they don't remember when they're signing up for an account. They just use, you know, whatever password comes to mind. Uh, so this is where, you know, you know, one password can really help. If I can just add on to that, a, a lot of games are actually, and game collections are actually available via browser, as Raj is talking about. Mm. So a big part of the gaming experience is actually going into your browser and, and handling a few things. So, for example, you can access a lot of your Steam account via your browser. A lot of your Riot account happens via your browser. There's a lot of elements to some of the bigger gaming platforms where uh, you do go through your browser in, in order to kind of make changes to your account. I see. Well, let's talk about uh, this effort that you all have embarked on here. This is the quest for the lost console, and it is a, a scavenger hunt. Uh, can you explain to us what exactly uh, is this about? Yeah, uh, I can, I guess in a, in a literal sense, as you put it, it's sort of a mix between a scavenger hunt and an escape room. You know, when we were first talking to 1Password, uh, I came up with the idea of, hey, what's a really fun way for us to kind of show password security 
and also have people kind of have a good time. And I, when I was younger, would play a lot of online escape room games. That was a big, like, that was a big pastime of mine, basically these uh, games on browsers. And I thought, hey, a lot of times in those, you have to figure out passwords and you got to kind of put your mind to the test in order to get that. And it kind of just goes to show the importance of having a good password. So that's sort of the origin of the idea, at least how it came from me. In terms of the game itself, you know, we just wanted to kind of bring forward a bunch of like a fantastical element and a fun element, all while still kind of putting forward this idea of, wow, this is so cool. And this is such a way for me to kind of remember passwords and, and realize the importance of having strong passwords, especially as the game gets harder and harder as you continue playing. Can you describe for us how a user would engage with it? The first thing that a user engages with would be our landing page, which has a bunch of different information, uh, both about one password, Gen G, password protection and, and security, et cetera, et cetera. We also had a bunch of inf gaming influencers involved that would do streams alongside us, uh, kind of advertising and showing off the game. Uh, and particularly, we actually gave all of them clues to different areas. Eventually, let's say you move on to actually playing the game. Uh, it's got a pretty distinct and unique art style, I would say. And you have to go through different levels using different clues uh, in the environment in order to figure out what the password is to move on. So, for example, the first level is a gate that you come across to get you into the mansion where we are hiding the lost console, a.k.a. Uh, the grand prize of the competition, a PlayStation 5 in this case. Well, that's a pretty good incentive, I'd say, for, for folks to, uh, <laughs> to jump in and join in the game. I, I have to say, as someone who grew up doing, uh, you know, old school text adventures, uh, this sounds uh, right up my alley, this sort of puzzle solving and that sort of thing. Raj, what do you hope the take-homes here are? I mean, for, for folks who engage with this, are we looking for just a, a better awareness and, and uh, active engagement with uh, things like password managers? Yeah, I think I think the first and foremost thing we wanted to do is basically raise the awareness and on how important is password security and do it in a way which is fun, like a scavenger hunt and a, like escape style, you know, escape room style puzzles. Uh, the goal here is uh, if you basically go and go through the puzzles, there are also we you know interesting way to learn more about one password. So there's some like one password features that get featured in, in the puzzles as well. Uh, so we would, basically the goal here was education around how the importance of online security is when it comes to gaming. Julian, how, how about for you? What are you hoping people take away from this? I'm really just hoping, um, A, that people kind of understand that a strong password can really make or break the difference between getting to that next stage for people, Right. I've had so many of my friends and, and people kind of come through and play some of these levels and realize like, wow, some of the passwords that you put in here, and I'll give a little hint here for some of them, you know, are case sensitive, right? Mm. And that's really what stumped them on some of these levels. And it just goes to show how important some of the things are, such as case sensitive or special characters in making passwords stronger. So that's one goal. And then obviously, I, 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 as you mentioned, Dave, I played a lot of those kind of like text-based adventures and uh, as well. So I'm also just hoping that people really enjoy themselves and find this to be an experience that they remember and kind of remember one password in Gen G is having kind of put forward something that they liked and wasn't just uh, straight up like, here's an ad. Yeah. You know, Raj, it also strikes me that, you know, from my own experience with a password manager that 
Um, I, I guess I, I had a little hesitation before I engaged with it, but then once I got into it and I started to see how it works and and really ultimately how it made my life easier and more secure, you kind of look back and you wonder how did you ever live without it? And so I, I think it's clever how you're through gameplay, you're actually showing people how to interact with these sorts of tools. To me, that seems like a, a great way to, to kind of give them a taste of what they're in for. Mm-hmm. Exactly, you nailed it. I think one of the biggest thing what we have learned around uh, password managers are people usually don't think about using password managers. <laughs> they re- you know reuse and recycle passwords a lot, and then usually they take it seriously when, for example, you know someone hacks into one of their accounts, right, or their identity gets stolen. So what we are trying to do right now, and our end goal, our goal here is, and Gen G partnership is one example of it. Like, how can we make, you know, security, you know, accessible for everyone? How can we demystify security, online security? Uh, and that was one of the end goal of doing the partnership with Gen G. And you'll see more, you know, more of these going forward. I don't know if you any like either of you have watched our Ryan Reynolds ad. Uh, and the reason, you know, we use Ryan Reynolds for our first one password commercial was basically we want to make sure that it reaches a lot of those people who are not tech savvy and understand the importance of, you know, password manager uh, when it comes to online security. Joe, what do you think? They open with saying, talking about how they, uh, during the pandemic, more people started gaming. Right. And I will say, Dave, I started doing a little more gaming during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've been a gamer for years uh, yeah. since I've had a computer, right? In 1992, uh-huh. I started playing video games on my computer. And, but during the pandemic, I actually started playing like Fortnite. Uh-huh. Right. And uh, I, I enjoy that game. It's, it's pretty fun. And you know, I got I have a couple of friends that I'll see them online. I'll jump in and 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 play with them as well. It's it's a great platform to play on. Yeah, and it's free to play and it's fun. So I see why these things are uh, are more common. And I agree with that statement. Yeah, I mean, I'm part of that group of people that came into it. Hmm. I think it's really interesting and kind of puzzling to me how much people value what they have in in game items. Mm-hmm. How much value they place on it. Uh, I have other people I play games with. You know, I, I've told you I played that online game or the uh, play-by-email game. Yeah. Uh, and I had another friend of mine, and we were talking like, what would you do if you had $1,000 you wanted to that you you just got right now? And one of them said, I'd buy some in-game gold, $1,000 of in-game gold. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Hmm. You'd spend I, – I just never understood – a lot of a lot of the value of these things, but some people will do this, and a lot of people do it. And because these things are valuable and sometimes transferable, they are a target for these scams. Right, right. Um, people don't really realize how much they may have put into it until it comes time to rebuild something. Mm. Right. Like, have you ever? Uh, do you play a lot of games? Uh, the games I play tend to not be multiplayer games. Okay. Yeah. But have you ever played a like a long game? Yeah. Oh, sure. And then you're like halfway through it, and then something goes wrong, and yes. you have to start over again. Yes. And how frustrating that is. Yes. Imagine that, but now you've got 
an inventory of stuff you paid for. Mm-hmm. And you have to, you, you may not even realize how much money you've spent on these items. Right. And now you have to rebuild your, your list of items again. Yes. That would be very frustrating. Very frustrating. I, there's a good chance I would walk away and right. never, never play that game again. Uh, there, that is probably exactly what I would do. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't play that game for years unless, you know. <laughs> right, right. This um, <laughs> one thing you're good at, Joe, it's holding a grudge. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I tend to be a very resentful person. <laughs> People don't pay attention to these items as closely as they do to their bank accounts. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, and it's it's that makes 100% sense to me, right? I mean, sure. your bank account is where, you know, your bank account is money that can be exchanged for goods and services. Uh, if you're going to sell something out of your gaming inventory— that's a process. That's this almost is literally like, play money. Right. It's right? exactly. It's, <laughs> it's play, play money. money. Yeah. It does yeah. have value, but uh, these scammers can, they have processes in place that probably automate all this stuff. Yeah. Using a password on a non-PC device is a pain. Oh, yeah. It is awful. And I don't have this problem, Dave, because I'm part of what they call the PC master race. Go on. <laughs> I play. I don't play <laughs> games on consoles very much. Oh, I see. I, I only play them on games. So yeah. you can play Fortnite on consoles. I don't. Uh, I see. The people I play with, uh, uh, I play with, uh, and actually they listen to this podcast, so I'll say hello, Chad. That uh, <laughs> They play They play on, on consoles. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't. So, but- I have the exact same problem with my streaming services, mm-hmm. right? And putting a password on a streaming service is miserable. Yeah, That's why I like HBO Max as a streaming service because it says, here's a code, authenticate on your, on your, on your web browser. Right. That's great. But right. other services like Disney Plus doesn't have that. Yeah, I have to. I mean, uh, just a quick tip. It's one of the reasons I like uh, using Apple TV. Uh, it's an expensive device, but... One of the benefits of it is you can connect it to your mobile device, ah. so which has a keyboard, right? Yeah. <laughs> so when you need to put a password in, you can whip out your phone and type it in there rather than having to scroll, click, scroll, click, right. scroll, click. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know it's what, Dave? Apple, one of the things Apple does very well is manage user experience. Yep. They make it seem so simple, so yep. easy. My yep. wife and I were just complaining about my wife is complaining about her phone. She has the same phone I do. We mm-hmm. both have the Google latest Google Pixel phones. Okay. Uh, and uh, frankly, we're not impressed with them. You know, <laughs> uh, they uh, and you know, I've never heard an Apple iPhone user complain about the use of their iPhone. Mm. And I don't know, Dave. We might be doing it soon. Yeah. Well, come on over. It's yeah. it's, it's awfully nice over here. Yes. <laughs> anyway, back back to our uh, to our interview here. What else struck you, Joe? Uh, so they have come up with this game, this online escape room game. Yeah. Uh, these. Uh, do you remember the first online? You ever play any of these? <sighs> no. Well, I mean, I. I mean, look, I, I came up in the era of text adventure games. Right. So before there was an online. You know, we were playing uh, you know, Zork and, and those kinds of things. And Scott Adams' Adventure. Yep. Not yep. Scott Adams from Dilbert, but the other Scott Adams, the yeah. software engineer. Right. You know, Lost uh, Lost Dutchman's Gold was another one I yeah. played. And uh, there was Pyramid, Madness and the Minotaur. And there was all these— Text-based games. Text-based games, yeah. That was the first fun. thing I, I programmed when I learned how to program when I was a kid. I wrote a, a text-based adventure game. Yeah. It, yeah. it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> But but they're great fun. I mean, they, they are. They, you know, they were anyway. They are. Yeah. Well, I remember the first online uh, escape room game. I can't find it anywhere. It's called. It was called Subroom, 
and it was online. It was beautiful. Mm-hmm. So I'm 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 interested to see what this one looks like. I haven't checked it out yet, but I will. But also, what I want to check out is their Ryan Reynolds ad because <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'm kind of a Ryan Reynolds fanboy. Okay, you know he's 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 not a he's. I don't think he's a great like actor in terms of like like he's not. He's no Kathy Bates, right? You know, he yeah, doesn't yeah. have the. But he is. I I really enjoy watching everything he does. Okay, I've not seen anything that I I look at Ryan Reynolds and go that except maybe Green Lantern. But he's very good at being Ryan Reynolds. He's very good at being Ryan Reynolds, yeah. and I like Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, the main point of this entire interview is use a password manager, mm-hmm. which I think is probably one of the top two things you do if you're worried about authentication. The first thing you do is use multi-factor authentication. The second thing you do is use a, to- a password manager. Yeah. Um, and uh, I do sec- secure all of my gaming accounts with multi-factor authentication, mm. uh, mm-hmm. as well as all the email accounts that they send email to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I would also recommend not just your gaming accounts, but your email accounts, because if something happens, that's what these guys are uh are going to attack next is your email account. Yeah. So if you can if you can secure that cuz think about it cuz what what happens when you forget your password? You get an email sent to you. Right. And if you don't right. have that email secured with a with a unique password, then you're you're vulnerable to uh social engineering attacks on based on password reuse. Yeah. All right. Well, again, our thanks to uh, Raj Sakar and Julian Benishow for taking the time for us. We do appreciate it. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Ivan. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 